I can never figure these things out. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's see, just a couple of um, very brief things. I want to fly over this tonight and I'm going to just mention some of the themes to keep in mind. Um, I want to do a quick review of last week and then I want to um, do a very quick overview of Melville and Faulkner. It's going to be so quick it'll probably be ridiculous, but I think it's important to do because you guys are in a special position. You have two of the greatest works of modernity one from the north, one from the south, and you're in a rare position to, to have a, prof I think, a profound glimpse into differences between north and south. So I don't, I don't want to leave tonight without taking a minute with that. So I want to take a minute with that and then fly through some of the major themes of our last story, Go Down Moses, and then what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually spend more time reading through the book because I want you to hear it um, and then just comment because it closes the novel and it would be good to leave it in Faulkner's hands as much as I can, so. Very, very quickly, we talked about the Agon in section four, you all know it. And um, I think I've said that in some sense, I think one of the ways in which we're encouraged to see that Agon, that agony, that conflict, as a miniature, um, an exemplum of the larger ag gone involving our whole country, north, south, and the various classes and the divisions that we still have as a people. Faulkner opened that up for us in, in this um, epic. We talked about the importance of time and the way in which a novel can do something that science can't because it works with abstractions. That one of the ways we're encouraged to look at the work is as a palimpsest. Remember I told you it's a palimpsest is a parchment that you overlay or um, earlier documents so that they all can be read through it. That over and over and over again we're encouraged to see that what's happening here between Ike and Kaz and, and Ike's choice to relinquish the land and the, 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 the problems that are concealed in that struggle um, already um, already took place in the ancient world, in Eden, in Cape, particularly Canaan, because Canaan was the promised land. And there are repeated allusions to it. Noah's son, the grandsons, inheriting the flood. The, remember Ham's son, sons being cursed because Noah cursed Ham. Well, not Ham, he actually cursed Canaan. So the promised land was cursed. It stood under a curse. And what we get is this sense that what's taking place now is a reenactment of something that took place thousands of years ago, that the fall is still with us. And it's important for us to see that that's true, and maybe even more true for us because in the modern world, particularly with technology, we try to do everything we can to escape the past. We want to live in a technological world that, that gives us the illusion that we can create our own world. But we've seen that that illusion's been with us from the very beginning, the very first city, the city of Enoch City, to create this self-sufficient world and so we don't need God. So in the story, Faulkner's giving us a layered presentation of the fall, that what's happening here in the South, the curse that the South is under, um, actually took place. So um, 
one of the ways we're meant to read what's going on now is through the past by understanding what happened then. Man being dispossessed of Eden, losing Eden, and then losing the promised land. When the Jews came into the promised land, we all know what happened. They lost it. Um, there are all these struggles for freedom, and twice in that section four we saw that um, Ike said, none of us is free. He said, Sam Father set me free at one point, and then later in that, con that, that argument, that debate with Kaz, he says, none of us is free. And we still, we're still struggling to earn our freedom. We use freedom badly. The theme of language and reading, remember that everything's centered in the, uh, the ledgers. Uh, they're the sorts of things that people would ordinarily ignore. I didn't. He read the ledgers and this, um, they revealed this curse in the family, this, this awful sin. Um, and at the end of four, we saw Boone with his back against the tree, breaking his gun with the squirrels going around. and. There's that moment when Ike sees the serpent. It's interesting. I mean, that, that in itself takes us back to the fall. It's not just a snake. He knows that that snake represents ancient things. And we know from what Sam taught him that his whole way of responding to nature is very different from the other men. It's not just a snake. He holds up his hand the way Sam did and says, Ole, um, grandfather, chief. Um, um, and we see in Boone a, a, a figure who is um, lost, broken down, um, overwrought with confusion. In some ways, I think he's meant to be an image of a man um, who has reached a point in his life where the, the hunter's code, the honor's code under which he's lived all of his life is gone. The wilderness is gone. Um, his gun is broken apart. The meaning of his life has disappeared. Um, and we saw um, also in, um, you know, through that period, what happened with, um, we saw in, th what was in, in three when, when old Ben was killed and Sam was killed and Lion was killed. We talked about everything gone. We see the same thing repeated in four and five. Hubert's legacy that he passes on to Ike, remember, disappears. He keeps writing IOU banknotes against it. and. And then the last scene that we see in that section is Ike's wife saying to him, promise. And that word resonates with meanings because it, you know, it's not just his wife using sex to extort a promise from him for the land. I think it's meant to, rec to recall the, the echoes from the Bible, that Ike was the one who was the chosen one and the Jews had gone into the chosen land into Canaan, expecting milk and honey. So over and over and over again, there are all these things that happen that end in disappointment, failure, defeat. And one of the questions that I asked last week when we ended it all was, was um, how do we look at Ike's choice? Um, because you know in Delta Autumn, when we finished Delta Autumn last week, it ends with um, Ike's mistress coming and um, no, Ike, I, uh, or sorry, Roth's mistress coming, and Ike giving her the money that Roth had, Roth, Ike Candy, that Roth had given her to pay her off. And there are those awful words of, I, at least for me, when he says to her, go north, find a husband and marry. He, he wants to get her out. 
which to me was an indirectly a buy-off on his part, and, um, and then he offers her the money, which was Roth's way of buying her off, and what we see in that act was a reenactment of old Carruthers who took the inheritance and wanted to pay all the black descendants off. Remember all the money that I took. So, so when we put all that together, we have to ask the question, was his choice futile? And she even accuses him. She says, you're the one who's at fault. Um, you spoiled him. I would have made a man of him. So, and, and we talked about that, got a little bit dicey earlier. What's the word? Spicy. I'm with her. Spicy. Huh? I'm with her, whatever she said. <laughs> <laughs> I told Marcy I missed her last week because she didn't, couldn't stand up with me. <laughs> um, anyway, there were some differences. I, I just want to, I, I don't want to go back to that, but I, to offer one thought for all of you. Um, because the overarching question that you know that I always want to bring us back to is do we find Christ in these books that we're reading because they're so human? Um, if he's our God, we expect him to be there very often where we sometimes don't expect him, you know, but he's there. When Ike renounces the land, um, he does it because he wants to put an end to the curse. His words to Kaz in that debate were enough. Remember, those were Kaz's words to the, the, the black guy who came to Mary Fonzova when the black guy was talking to him and like, sort of lecturing him about freedom, and, and Kaz said, enough, stop. He couldn't hear, he did not want to hear him anymore. And those are the, the words that Ike recalls when they're in the debate. It's his way of saying, he, he can't undo the curse, but it's his way of saying enough. So his choice was his effort to try to stop something once he realized what was at root in it, this awful curse. When we get to the end of Go Down, or Delta Autumn, and he learns that Roth has conceived a child again with a woman who's a descendant of the same black line, it's like we're looking at the curse repeating itself. So the whole debate going back to the dispossession of Eden, the dispossession of Canaan, the reenactment of the fall is carried forward. And the question to ask is, should he have renounced it? And um, one of the things that I wanted to just offer to you was that question that I put to you about Christ. All the disciples expected great things of him. Um, they, even, they even carry them over in the beginning of Acts, I think. They keep expecting, is he going to return and, you know, are, are we going to see the fulfillment of this promise? He went to a cross and died. And they were crushed. Everything they lived for was gone. Absolutely gone. There were things they couldn't have understood. In fact, one of the indications of how much they missed him is even on the road to Emmaus afterwards. They don't recognize him because they think he's dead. So th there are things they didn't see. And one of the things that we have to deal with is when he went to the cross, it wasn't as if going to the cross would put an end to all sin because it didn't. The sins continue. So is the fact that the woman comes back and Roth reenacts the sin and um, proof that, or a piece of evidence that he, sh it was futile on his part, he shouldn't have done it, that he should have taken the land. Um, let me just leave it with you. I don't want to pick it up, but at least one thing to consider is Christ went to a cross and sins didn't stop. Sometimes we have to measure an act by its goodness because we can't control all the effects of it that come afterwards. But the question is, was it right in itself 
What would happen if he had not done it? And we don't have the example of that kind of renunciation. You know, questions like that. Um, so we left with Delta Ottoman, and now we're turning to the last story. But before we go there, I want to do a quick, I want to just make a couple of very, very brief points about um, differences between Moby Dick and Go Down Moses, North and South. Doc, you want to offer any thoughts on differences between Ike or Ishmael and Ike? Please. <laughs> You're so gracious. You asked me. I know, I know. Okay, next time I won't. Ike. I'm doing this because we've talked a number of times and between Ahab and Ike is easier. How about Ishmael and Ike right now? Because we've got a <laughs> Candy's really enjoying this. I want I'm gonna stay with this for a while. Just to hear Candy laugh at me. <laughs> Everything's funny, I'm really tired, so I'll take it personally. <laughs> um I don't know that I can speak directly to Ishmael and Ike. It seems to me that the evil in um, Moby Dick is um, is really clear and upfront. Um, Ishmael starts out throwing his lot in with Ahab, but he gradually pulls out. Ike, the evil Ike is facing is um, is culturally much more taken for granted. Um, nobody makes a big deal out of it. Um, Kaz knows. Doesn't affect him. I'm sure other people know too if they thought about it. And they just they don't. It's, it's not a big deal. It's something that happened, not just in a brother's family. Both Ahab and um, Ishmael in the beginning, um, but Ahab all the way through, and Ike um, think of themselves as fighting an evil. Um, the evil that Ahab and Ishmael start out fighting is mostly in Ahab's head. I don't see that Moby Dick um, is motivated by malice toward Ahab the way Ahab thinks he is. Um, the evil that Ike is fighting is real. It's not just in his head. Um, that's what comes to mind. Let me just touch on the a couple. The evil is more, is more obvious with Moby Dick. But in this story, it's more of an undercurrent. It's not out there in your face. And Ike sees it, but not the others don't. Mm -hmm. However, there's Molly. <laughs> wait, think, wait on her. I think Molly knew it all. Yeah, she wait on her because I, yeah. I mean, I want to close. I know you want to get to that, so. <laughs> 
Just a couple of quick thoughts on, on differences between the two heroes. Remember that, that Ish, we don't know Ishmael's identity. He takes on a new identity um, to signify his relation to this culture that makes no place for him, that he has no place in. He says, call me Ishmael. He's an outcast, so he's the outcast one. So by creating that kind of a character, we're put in a position of seeing the failure of this Christian world. It's produced this outcast, that this Christian world is failing. What's interesting about the way that he deals with it is that he deals with it in absolute isolation. This is really crucial. I mean, I'm going to underscore this through this, this, this brief, these few brief comments that I have to make here. Remember, he called me Ishmael. He's a very individual person. And we know him because of the stand he took. In the beginning with Ahab and, and increasingly as he distanced himself from Ahab's quest. But he always speaks. He's the survivor like the Jonah in the Old Testament. So he looks back to an Old Testament mentality and the outcast line. Ike and remember that the way all of the sailors are described on the Pequod is as isolatos. We are made aware of a, of, a, of a culture in which everybody is isolated from everybody else. The chapel scene exemplifies that. When we go into the chapel scene, everybody's isolated. Nobody sits together. Um, so they're, they're, we're left with this strong sense of the isolation of individuals. And by the way, Faulkner is going to reinforce that because we know from Go Down Moses, the story, that Samuel Beauchamp went north and he, he's nameless. When the, when the uh, census taker takes his name, he says no name. I mean, he doesn't have a name. He, um, I'll read that in a minute. He's making it clear that there's this spirit of anonymity that you, when you go north, you go into this world that is industrialized and impersonal. When you're in the south, we know it from the last story. Everybody looks out for everybody else. Miss Worsham is looking out for Molly. Molly's looking out for her grandson. Gavin's looking out for all of them. So in the South, there's this sense of a we. I've said that before. The, 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 and it's not to say there aren't individuals who lost in the South. There are. I don't want to overstate. But insofar as we're looking to the books, what Faulkner's showing us, and, and this is not um, polemical. He's not a politician. He's not trying to make a stand. What he's doing is telling a story, but through the story, we're learning something about the South. And what we see here is that it's a, that, that there is this common attachment to the land, and it, and it allows them to speak of themselves as a we. Um, and that's reinforced when we look at the stories, because take a look at every one of the stories. Every one of the stories is from a different point of view, and it's all about the same people, same community. Was is from Kaz's point of view when he's nine years old. Luca, or the fire in the hearth, Luca's point of view. Pantaloons Black, Ryder's point of view. The bear, Ike. Delta Autumn, Ike. Go down Moses, Gavin. We keep shifting our point of view and what happens it is we have this amazing thing. It's like the, for me, it's like the multiplication of the fishes. He's multiplying points of view to enlarge this sense that they're all a part of this community. But every time we go to one person or another, we get a different picture of it. So the whole fills out. It's a much richer whole. People are people. Is the same thing true of Moby Dick? No. 
do we do we ever get that much in anybody else's heads besides Ahab and Ishmael? No. But we live writer's story. We live Lucas's story. That's what fucked. I mean, he's just amazing. For a while, we were with Lucas, like him or not. For a while, we were with Ryder and went through that awful ordeal with him. The same thing with Ike. And then Ike is an old man and dealt on him when he has to face all this disillusionment. So we get very, two very different cultures, just in that sense. One of the other differences between the two is um, in the attitudes that they take towards evil. For the North, evil is a metaphysical phenomenon. We know that. And we talked about that before, that there's something Calvinistic in that culture that looks at evil as predestined, that it seems to be a part of God. Ahab's speeches go to that, whether he's agent or principal, you know, he will strike at it. He will go through the physical world to get at the spiritual world beyond, no matter what it cost him. So evil for the northern Puritan is metaphysical, it's spiritual, it's religious, deeply religious. Evil for the southerner is in the natural order. It, its, its roots are this possessiveness and the, the manifestation of it is slavery, you know, working itself out. In the north, Ahab wants to stamp it out. We know that. All the men sign up. I mean, they, they endorse that when they, you know, when they agree to join him on his mission. They all want to strike back because every one of them has suffered wounds. Every one of them knows. Every one of them is wounded. We all know that. We all know that from our own lives. Their response was to strike back, defeat it, uproot it, attack it. How different is that from Ike, who, who wants to give it up, to relinquish what he sees as what the occasion for that sin, the possessiveness of the land. So two radically different stances in dealing with evil. One is we can see New England Protestant, the other one is agrarian, communal, much more rooted in the natural order, and two very different responses to dealing with it. Um, in one sense, we can say Ahab wants to kill it. Finally, Ishmael separates himself from that. We know that, remember, his whole movement is um, to love. In the, in the spermaceti scene where they're all wringing hands and he gets woolly-eyed, and um, Ike's response is to bear it. And remember the word sefera. We did this earlier when we were dealing with tragedy. Sefera means to bear and ultimately to bear fruit. Sefere, to bring up from underneath. I remember going through that. It was such, for me, it was a really important class because we tend to, the modern world and technological world wants to do everything we, it can to get rid of suffering. The church says that's where you find Christ. The, the, we have to... We have to learn to live with it in a better way because that's where we find a grace. Ike's response is to suffer it, to bear it. And we know how difficult it, that is at the end because he has to face all of this disillusionment. It all seems for nothing. And he, there's no source of consolation. It's hard for me to read that without thinking of, of uh, martyrs and Christ. Who could Christ turn to at the end in the human order? Nobody. In the garden, he has nobody. I mean, he's praying to his father and he's weeping tears of blood. Who's he going to turn to? When the martyrs went to, the, to their martyrdom, who in the world could they turn to? Nobody. 
our habit is whenever we face problems, we want to we want to find consolation somewhere. We want to talk with somebody or get help or advice. Um, what Christ showed, the Dark Night of the Soul, one, I think one of the most important books in our tradition, is that all of us go through these dark nights. Um, we can look at Delta Autumn as the dark night of the soul for Ike. Um, okay, so those are just a couple of brief observations on the two books, something to keep in mind. I hope you guys will think about rereading those because if you do reread them, they're going to be different books. And when you do, you know, it, because when you go through a class like it, it gets too broken up. It, when you read it, you'll read it through and it'll be a different experience. And, but I, my sense is that when you read it, all of these things will deepen for you. You know, if you go back to Go Down Moses, so many of the language problems would disappear. You know the story. It'll be much easier to read. So, but you'll, I think most of us will find in those two books that they, they really do show um, the outcast aspect of America and its roots in the Old Testament and the promised child. And it's interesting to see that both of them end in defeat, as in the ancient world. And, and you, we have to see at some point that's because Christ ended his life here on earth in defeat. He had to do that. If you, he could not have come back from death without dying. So that was absolutely essential to the risen life. And the question we're going to ask now, and that's, I mean, it's implied in what I just said, is the ending, the final story, Go Down Moses, does that reaffirm something? Do we come out of that darkness, or are we left with the disillusionment of Delta Autumn, the, the collapse of the hunter code, and, and the, the promise of the child, everything that Ike hoped would happen by renouncing the land? What does, what does Go Down Moses, the final story, do for that dark, that dark night of the soul, if we can put it that way? Some of the themes, quickly. Um, I think probably one of the most important themes of Go Down Moses, by Go Down Moses now I'm referring to the last story, not the, one of the most important themes of, of Go Down Moses is a community receiving its own. Molly, the story opens with, well it opens with Samuel in, in Illinois on the eve of his execution, but in in Jefferson, it begins with Molly coming to Gavin and saying, I want, I want you to find my son, my grandson. She wants him back. So it's about a community. Remember, it's a community because it's a whole community effort. Gavin, yeah. <laughs> Gavin uh, Molly doesn't have the money. She wants him back. And she doesn't know it well. She knows something's wrong. Immediately, Gavin finds out that, she's, that he's dead. And then he, re he knows that she wants him back, so they have to come up with the money to do that. And it's funny, Miss um, um, Worsham, Worsham offers some money, but it's not near enough to cover the expenses of the funeral. So he tells the editor that the two of them are going to have to cover most of it. Gavin goes begging through the town. He's asking for dollars, 50 cent quarters. So a community chips in to bring back its own. God bless. I mean, it's such a heartfelt. He's a killer. They're bringing him back. Differences between North and South. I'll, I'll read this. Um, they become obvious when we put the opening section together with everything that follows it, because in the opening section, we're shown Samuel with this census keeper. 
His last words are with a census keeper that make no sense of his identity. He almost has no identity. When he left the South, in, interesting, when he left the South to escape the curse. It's one of the grim ironies at the end. He left to get away from that. I mean, to th stop and think about that for a moment. How often we do things for idealistic motives because we want to escape awful things? Because we've got these ideals in our heads. He, he thinks he'll be free of this stuff. Or, and this is his end. And, and, and the end is bitter because what, what we're made aware of is how impersonal it is, how different it is from everything that goes on in Jefferson with Gavin and Miss Worsham and Molly and the editor. The male-female couldn't be starker, could not be starker. Molly brings it all into relief in an amazing way. Gavin Stephen is a man of the law, so is Roth. They do everything by codes. I think men are far more given to that. The story begins with Molly coming to Gavin's and saying, I want my son. Why did she, why on that day, when we know on that same day, the census taker is getting this information to prepare for his execution. She has some intuitive sense. Where does that come from? The men don't have it. The men don't have it. Gavin couldn't be farther away from it. We know that at the end when he goes to the house to visit them and they start that threnody, you know, they're singing. He runs. The suffering, the ordeal, the emotional intensity of it is too much for him as a man. And I'm going to suggest now um, that in Molly, to what we can call this intuition, this woman's intuition, whatever we want to call it, this knowledge through the heart, is in some ways um, something I'm going to associate, you know I've been doing this all along, with the creative imagination. It's the poetic imagination. It's, um, it's the kind of knowledge peculiar to poets who take us into the real life and allow us to suffer these things, to enter into them, so they become more part of our own lives. So the, the contrast between the kind of knowledge that Molly presents us on one hand and say the knowledge of the law, what Gavin represents, or, or Roth, stand off in contrast to each other. They're, they're images of differences between the male and female in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, differences between the races become clear here too. Um, the white people want to cover it up. Miss Worsham wants to cover it up, so does Gavin. Um, but when they can't get around the fact that Molly wants it, they both have to give it. Even then, Gavin wants to do everything he can. He says, I'll keep it out of the paper. Because to bring that boy home would, would, be, would be to offend everybody's, here we're in this northern world again, but it's not northern, it's southern. So this world of social respectability. You, um, I, I know, all, I, I'm, I'm trusting that all of us know this, that when things happen with our kids um, that embarrass us, it's a hard thing for us to suffer because it becomes, we're worried that we, that, that a wor oh, I that, how to put this, that the world will see that we're not as good as we, as we would like them to believe we are. You know, the social respectability that we, that we present ourselves as being these good, proper, respectable people. When bad things happen in our family, they're crushing experiences because suddenly we have to deal with this fact that we're not the way we seem to be. 
And it seems to me that's true here in a profound way because the blacks have always grown up humiliated. They're an underclass. We've been seeing that in almost every story. So in the white community, we see a very respectable community. They're, they're, it's, it's awkward for them. The blacks, Molly, she wants her son home. Bless her soul. He's a killer. Gavin says he's a murderer. You know, it's almost it's too shocking to... Um, so, again, these differences that we've been seeing through the whole thing. Um, repeatedly, there are these links to Canaan and the Jews. Remember, this is the promised land. Gavin Stevens is a lawyer. He's a man of the law. Why here? Go down Moses. Go down Moses. The story ends from the perspective of a man whose commitment is principally to the law. What does he do? And it's interesting. Faulkner has that description. He says his hobby is as a lawyer. Remember? His vocation is to translate the Old Testament from um, back into uh, classic Greek. And he's been working on it for 20 years. So he's a scholar. He's a man of the law. He's a man of the mind. Um, and we're reminded of the Canaan world again. And interesting, because right, I, I may miss this later. Think very seriously about this. Gavin does everything he can, even though he runs that night. You know, I'm, we're going to go through this in a minute because I love reading this story. He runs that night, but on the day of the funeral, when they pick him up at the train, when they pick Samuel up, they take him. Where does Gavin stop? County line. County line. What? Yes. What? What? Because what does that mark? The land. There it is. He stops at that boundary. They turn the car around, right at that sign, and he goes back. And he says, what's his last words? I haven't seen my desk. And there's that official, bureaucratic, administrative, male, if you want. I don't, male, female. But he stops there. That's the land. He's a man of the law. Where does Molly go? On. To bury her grandson. Robert? Yeah. Um, in defense of Gavin? Yes. Um, I'm not. Go ahead. Go ahead. Maybe not, but you sound like you are. You may get I want to. I just want to reinforce something. You know how much I love Gavin. I want to. I want to. I'm going to be commenting on things when we go ahead. But go I was ahead. just going to say he doesn't have the intuition that Molly has, but he trusts it absolutely. He never questions her. He knows if she says it, it's so, and nothing surprises him. That's except, not true, Doc. Except that he's not surprised. No, no, because he says, and there's that. I, I love that line when he, I'm going to read it when we get there, but he, he uses the word hope. I'm, I want to come to it because it's really subtle, but he hopes it will be so, and then he realizes that what, Mo, when he realizes that what Molly recognized was true in fact, then he realizes he really wanted it to be covered up. G Gavin, I, can't, I cannot say, and, and I love Gavin Stevens, and when we do this, the, I told you, or I told the other group, um, when we do the trilogy together, one of the major figures would be Gavin Stevens. He will be at the center of everything that happens. He's a good, good man. My reason for putting, presenting, if I'm putting him in two negative, like I'm, I'm, it's not my intention, but I'm trying to underline something I think that's true for this, this particular story. It's really important that we see him as a man of the law. The, and the incongruity between Gavin and Molly, because they represent an antithesis in some ways that we're, we're meant to see. It's not to take away from either one of them. Gavin's a good man, but 
but it's important to see there are limitations in, to what people do. And I think the, the focus of this story ultimately, even though we get it from Gavin's point of view, is Molly because she's going to do something that I don't think anybody else, her, Lucas could certainly not do it. Gavin can't do it. Let me wait on that. Let me just wait on that. And, oh, Molly's intuition. Um, and the, 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 in case we're pressed towards the end, but the, the overarching question that I want to leave us with tonight is, is Christ in here? When we put this story down, can we find Christ? And remember, I tried to enlarge our ways of looking at him. Is he in the language with all of its confusion? Um, is it in the language that we have to work at it to find it? Is he there in the action? Remember we've talked about the plot that certain things happen to show that there's a providential order that something's going on? Is he there in any of the characters? If so, where? But let me come back. I want to come back to that. But those are some of the things I'd like us all to just keep in mind tonight, okay? Um, let me turn to the story, unless any of you have any questions or comments or anything you want. What I'd like to do is, is read through a lot of the story because it's such a good story, and then just comment briefly as we go through it and then come back to some of these questions, particularly the one about Molly and the one about um, Christ. But before we do that, any, any questions? Carl, you look like you've got something. I have, I have some other questions and thoughts that we'll get to about um, the sheriff and his role and what he gave credit or failed to give credit. You're talking about Gavin? Yes, Gavin. The, the lawyer. Yeah, the lawyer. What he gave credit or failed to give credit to the black community about their communication with him, about how they probably had their own network of finding things out and knowing about them mm -hmm. that seemed to go right over his yeah, head. Yeah. He, he didn't give them... You're talking to me or my wife right now? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I took some time this morning and reread I'm glad. the last, last book. And as I was telling Suzanne, it really, we really ought to go back and reread the whole thing. <laughs> like Bob has been trying to tell us. Because it's way different the second time around. Oh, you understand sure. it, yes. you kind of know it with yes. you. Yep. Pick up different things, yes. you realize what you didn't understand before that now you do. It'll be so much and richer. It was enjoyable to just read right yeah. through it. Yes, yes, yeah. I hope you do. Well, I'm glad for you. I'm really, I'm genuinely glad because it is a complete. Once you, you know, once you've read it, it's easy. I mean, you'll go through it so much more, and then you'll hold it all together and you'll experience different things for sure. Wow, good for you, good for you. Okay, let's turn to the story. I'm just gonna go through it and read passages to try to hold the whole thing together because it's such an enjoyable story and, and comment on it. If, you <coughs> if any of you want to interrupt to defend Gavin or or comment on his limitations or Molly, Molly, or anything, go ahead. I, I want to try to put off Molly as much as I can to the end because I, 
there's some huge questions to ask about her um, because it, it, it's really interesting. Look at every one of his Faulkner stories. The endings always have these enormous ironies. Think about the old people. Remember with Sam Ewell over the deer and says, you know, look at the size of those footprints, I would swear that, you know, the irony of that. Look at the irony with Boone against the, you know, or you could, or the irony in Delta Autumn with um, the woman coming. Every story leaves us with this profound irony and a sense of mysteries that there's so much more going on um, that we can describe in any definitive way. There's, there's a lot going on. He doesn't give us answers. He leaves us with these very human predicaments and where there's a lot that we see while we know that there's a lot leaving us with questions. So, okay, beginning, I got on page 351. What, what page are you guys on at the very beginning? 351. Three what? 351. Oh, 351? Yeah. Wow, we're together. That's nice. Um, okay. Um, so this is, go ahead, Moses. Two comments about um, the beginning. One of them I've already said, but I'll repeat it because it's worth reinforcing. One of them is, notice here what we see everywhere in Faulkner, how concrete the descriptions are so that he draws us fully into the scene. We become so fully a part of it because they're so, com so concretely rendered. We can, we can see very clearly what's in front of us. The face was black, smooth, impenetrable. The eyes had seen too much. The negroid hair had been treated so that it covered the skull like a cap in a single neat ridge sweep with the appearance of having been lacquered. The part trimmed out with a razor so that the head resembled a bronze head, imperishable and enduring. What an image, you know, like a statue that's not a living human being. Um, he wore one of the, what does that say? I mean, I, I don't want to dwell on that, but just look at that image. Is there some way in which some of the things that we do with ourselves can almost turn us into a piece of artwork, a statue? Or So the head resembled a bronze head, imperishable and enduring. He wore one of those sports costumes called ensembles in the men's shop advertisement, shirt and trousers matching and cut from the same fawn-colored flannel. And they had cost too much and were draped too much with too many pleats, and he half lay on the steel cot in the steel cubicle, just outside which an armed guard had stood for 20 hours now, smoking cigarettes and answering in a voice which was anything under the sun but a southern voice or even a Negro voice. He's done everything he can to get rid of his southern identity going to the north. His appearance, it's clownish, it's glamorous, it has all the mark of Hollywood, I mean, can I say that? It's, you know, it's, it's overdone, flashy. Was anything under the sun but a southern voice or even a Negro voice? The question of the spectacled young white man sitting with a broad census taker's portfolio on the steel stool opposite. A census taker, how impersonal. Samuel Worsham Beauchamp, 26, born the, count, the country near Jefferson, Mississippi, no family, no, wait, the census taker wrote rapidly. That's not the name you were lived under in Chicago. 
the other snapped the ash from the cigarette. No, it was another guy killed the cop. All right, occupation, getting rich too fast. He has no occupation, he doesn't work in any job that he can be identified with, and he has no name. Born in the country, no family, no weight. That's not the name you were lived under in Chicago. So he's taken on another identity. He's, he's, what's the word I'm looking for? Rootless. He's not attached. He's anonymous. Um, getting rich too fast, none. So he says none. The census taken road rapidly. Parents, and look at, he doesn't even answer. There's no question mark. I hope you're all getting that. I mean, punctuation is so telling. Faulkner doesn't miss anything. There's no question. He's just, it's a machine. Just giving words. Parents, sure, too. Sure, too. I mean, it's, just, it's so mechanical. Sure, too. I don't remember them. My grandfather raised me. What's her name? Is she still living? I don't know. Molly Worsham, Beauchamp. If she is, she's on Carruthers Edmonds Farm, 17 miles from Jefferson, Mississippi. That all? He wants to get it. So... Um, he says, if they don't know who you are here, how will they know? How do you expect to get home? The other snapped the ash from the cigarette line and the steel caught in the fine Hollywood clothes and a pair of shoes better than the census taker would ever own. What will that matter to me, he said. So the guy leaves, um, and they slit his trousers and prepare him for the execution. So in the opening scene, we get a sense of how impersonal things are and Samuel's complete severance from the community in the South, or even any sense of who he is. He's nameless. He, in so many ways, he's an image of modern man, rootless, uprooted, cut up, no family, no community, no past. And he did that in part, though, because he was a fugitive, right? Say it again, Carl. Wasn't he a fugitive, and that's why he wanted to have no background, no, no same name, yeah. not traceable. Yeah, but I, yes, yes. But I, I think, though, that, um, you know, where we put the because here, cause and effect, which cause, that I, I think we're meant to come away with this feeling that his leaving the South and going North um, is, is contained in this. That, that he will lose everything, that when somebody does that, this uprooting, and, and, and particularly going north for Faulkner, because there you're in an industrial world, you're in a very different world. It's going to be very different from the world we're going to see right now that, that he presents to us with Gavin and Molly and Miss Worsham. And it's interesting that when he's facing death, he gives his name. He still knows his identity. Yeah, but even then it's... You know, it's, it's like this impersonal tag. I mean, who is he? He's not lived by that name. This is an official, it's an official document. It's, we, I think there's a strong sense that this guy has lost, he's, he's wearing a clown suit. He's gonna die. Um, he's lived for wealth and money. He, he, um, he's purchased these clothes, probably the, the way convicts are allowed to make a request, I'm guessing, I don't know that. Um, it's sad to see this figure in this. He was in numbers. Runner, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He probably had some cash, and that was probably how a numbers runner dressed. I could see him outside, you know, the uh, the sting you know, with Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's been in jail for some time. I mean, 
I, I, he's been, I don't know. He's been in jail for a while because he's sentenced and going to be executed for murder. The second section, on that same, notice the concrete descriptions again. On that same hot, bright July morning, the same hot, bright wind, which shook the mulberry leaves just outside Gavin Stevens' window, blew into the office too, contriving a semblance of coolness from what was merely motion. It fluttered among the county attorney business on the desk and blew in the wild shock of prematurely white hair of the man who sat behind it, a thin, intelligent, unstable face a rumpled linen suit from whose lapel a Phi Beta Kappa key dangled and a watch chain. Gavin Stevens, Phi Beta Kappa, Harvard, PhD, Heidelberg, whose office was his hobby, although it made his living for him, and whose serious vocation was a 22-year-old unfinished translation of the Old Testament back into classic Greek. Molly comes in, she says, um, he says, they don't, he doesn't know her, um, virtually. You live in McCarthy's, Carruthers Edmonds place. I done left, she said. I come to find my boy. Um, Roth Edmonds sold my Benjamin, sold him in Egypt. Pharaoh got him. Now remember one of the, because I, I mentioned this difference between the black community and white. One of the things that we have to identify here, who is Pharaoh? What is Egypt? And it seems to me f fairly clear that the white community is Egypt. And the black community is the, are the slaves. And the leader, the pharaoh, is Edmonds. So this whole, remember, we've been asked to read holding different levels of history together simultaneously. So we're not only back in Eden and Canaan, we're also in Egypt. Um, and Faulkner's showing us that these things exist simultaneously in our culture. Um, wait, Stephen says, wait, Auntie, because memory recollection was about to mesh and click. If you don't know where your grandson is, how do you know he's in trouble? Do you mean that Mr. Edmonds has refused to help you find him? It was Roth Edmonds sold him, she said, sold him in Egypt. I don't know where he is, I just knows Pharaoh got him. And you, law, I wants, I wants to find my boy. All right, he says, I'll try to find him. She says she's staying um, with camp and then um, we get the backstory to this and what we learn is that I think about the time that he was 16 or so um, he was in trouble with the law um, and, and it, on page 354 towards the bottom it says um, he was orphaned of his mother at birth and deserted by his father whom the grandmother had taken and raised or tried to because at 19 he'd quit the country and come to town and s spent a year in and out of jail for gambling and fighting. So at 19 he comes into town. On the next page we learn that Edmonds had disowned him. When he broke into the commissary, he told him to get off the land, which is the act that Molly sees as his selling him to Pharaoh. But then according to her, Edmonds had already refused to have anything to do with it this is in the middle of 355. Then he sat perfectly still while the hot wind blew in his wild white mane. Now he comprehended what the old negress had meant. He remembered now that it was Edmonds who had actually sent the boy to Jefferson in the first place. He'd caught the boy breaking into his commissary store and had ordered him off the place and had forbidden him ever to return. And then, as you know, 
in italics we get his thoughts. And not the sheriff, the police, he thought. Something broader, quicker in scope. <coughs> Carl, this goes to your comment. I think when he says, it wasn't the police, you know, he gets into trouble with the law. There's something broader, quicker, because Faulkner, for the last several stories, has been giving it this broader, deeper sense of what's going on, that it's a part of the culture. It's, um, it so permeates the fabric of the culture that it's in everybody's life. This curse, the wrath, having no tolerance for the boy, wanting to get him off the land, and, and finally the effects of that, because we learn years later he, he gets into trouble in Jefferson and he's finally arrested and then escapes. An old nigger woman named Molly Beauchamp, Stephen said, um, let's see, he goes to see the editor and then um, he describes what had just happened. She and her husband live on the Edmonds place. It's her grandson, you remember him, Butch Beauchamp, about five or six years ago, who spent a year in town, mostly in jail, until they finally caught him breaking into Rouncewell's store one night. Well, he's in worse trouble than that now. I think this goes to what you were saying, Doc. I don't doubt her at all. I just hope for her sake, as well as that of the great public, whom I resent. There's his township. He is a public servant. That's, that's his strength. That's his goodness. He serves the public, the great public whom I represent, that, it, that his present trouble is very bad and may be final too. So he trusts her. I mean, he takes, he takes seriously what she says. Wait, the editor said. And then he shows them this clip that he just received. Five minutes later, <coughs> Stevens was crossing again the empty square in which Noon's hot suspension was that much nearer. He had thought that he was going home to his boarding house for the noon meal, but he found that he was not. Besides, I didn't lock my office door, he thought. Only how under the sun could she have got to town from those 17 miles she may even have walked? So it seems I didn't mean what I said I hoped, he said aloud mounting the outside stairs again out of the hazy and now windless sun glare and entered his office. He stopped and he said, what does it mean when he says, so it seems I didn't mean what I said I hoped? What does he mean? He was hoping that it was going to be final, that he would in fact be executed. Um, but that was when it was abstract. Yeah. That was what? That was when it was abstract. Yeah. Now he is going to be ex um, executed, and he feels bad about holding that. He didn't mean he thought he was going to be killed or dead. He didn't want him really to be. Well, he says, I just hope for her sake as well as that of the great public. That is, he wants to cover it up. I mean, that's yeah. his first response. That he, I just hope for her sake as well as that of the great public whom I that his present trouble is very bad and maybe final, so it's over. But now it's become public, um, and he says, so it seems I didn't mean what I said I hoped. Mm -hmm. He knows it's going to be more that isn't going to be as easy to cover up. He's going to have to do something. And um, so this, this veil, or this, what to call it, this fabricated surface of respectability, social respectability, is going to be something awkward. She comes to visit, and... And, and he tells her um, what he'd learned. He's, he says in the middle of 5, 357, 
I telephoned Stephen says, I talked to the warden at Joliet, the district attorney. He had a fair trial, a good lawyer of that sort. He had money. He was in a business called Numbers that people like him make money in. She watched him. It's really interesting to watch Faulkner's descriptions of her. Remember the, the description of him? I can't remember. He had this volatile face, a fragile face or volatile. Her face is stoic. Her, she's unmoved. She's so committed. She's so firm. Um, he had a fair trial, a good lawyer of that sort. He had money. He, he was in a business called Numbers that people like him make money in. She watched him erect and motionless. He's a murderer, Miss Worsham. He shot the policeman in the back, a bad son of a bad father. He admitted, confessed it afterwards. I know, she said. Then he realized that she was not looking at him, not seeing him at least. It's terrible. So is murder terrible, Stephen says. It's better this way. And she was looking at him again. I wasn't thinking of him. I was thinking of Molly. He's hoping still that can be kept out of the public. Oh, it's over. He's a murderer. He's going to be executed. I wasn't thinking of him. I was thinking of Molly. She mustn't know. She says the same. Yes, Stephen says. I've already talked with Mr. Wil uh, Wilmoth in the paper. He's agreed not to print anything. I will telephone the Memphis paper. It's probably too late. If we could just persuade her to go back home this afternoon before the Memphis paper out there where the only white person she ever sees is Mr. Edmonds, and I will telephone him. I'm sure they wouldn't. And then maybe in about two or three months I could go out there and tell her he's dead and buried somewhere in the north. This time she was watching him with such an expression that he ceased talking. It's her everything is so understated, and yet she says so much by her silence, watching him until he'd see. She will want to take him back home with her, she said. Him? Stephen said, the body? She watched him. The expression was neither shocked nor disapproving. It merely embodied some old, timeless female affinity for blood and grief, Stevens thought. She has walked to town in this heat unless Hamp brought her in the book. <laughs> He's got these practical things on her head, I mean, on his, on his head. <laughs> Dramatically, I mean, think about the irony. There's something tremendous going on, and he's thinking of, he's, he's a gentleman through and through. He's the only child of her oldest daughter, her own dead first child. He must come home. He must come home, Steve has said as quietly. I'll attend to it at once. I'll, I'll tell it. So there's the shift. Mm -hmm. Now he'll have to get busy. Um, um, he looked at her straight in the face. He told the lie without batting. He's going to, the expenses won't be great when it's going to be, because he knows it's going to be more than they can afford. Ten or twelve dollars were covered. They will furnish a box and there will be only the transportation. A box? Again she was looking at him with that expression, curious and detached, as though he were a child. He is her grandson, Mr. Stevens. When she took him to raise, she gave him my father's name, Samuel Worsham. Not just a box, Mr. Stevens. I understand that can be done by paying so much money. Now remember, um, Molly and um, Lucas um, were slaves under her, Miss Worsham's father. She's white. Her father was a, a doctor, so a well-respected man. Um, he, she inherited the house from him, so she's white. But she and Molly grew up, I think they were born a month from each other. They have grown up close friends, so she looks at Molly as a sister. So the women here 
from different races have this natural sympathy with each other. Um, she's looking out for Molly. She knows Molly will want the boy home. So she's telling Stevens that, that this has to be. Um, later that evening, um, he, he does what he tells her he would do. He was trying to console her. Um, he, um, he goes to visit. He spends the day trying to get money because he knows the train will come in, I think it's in two days, the day after, and they will pick up the body. So um, he has to take care of the, of the, of the cost. Um, and there's this funny description. Take a look on 360. I want you to just see it because it, to me it's, it's a sort of thing you can read and not even give a thought about because it, it's, it's like Faulkner to do this with language. Towards the bottom of the page it said, Stephen passed from store to store, office to office about the square, merchant and clerk, propriety. Notice, not people. These are people identified by their business, their occupation. Merchant and clerk, clerk proprietor and employer. Dr. Dennis, lawyer and harbor. That's all one, because in one sense, they're identically, I mean, they're, you know, they're, in, they're behind their professions, their, their fields. So he's, he's going to go out and get this money. It's to bring a dead nigger home. It's for Miss Worsham. Never mind about a paper to sign. Just give me a dollar or a half dollar um, or a quarter then. Because this, I mean, I can imagine white people not wanting to give anything. This is a nigger. He's a murderer. You know, that they don't want to support it. Um, so... More and more this thing is falling to Gavin. That night he goes there on page 361. They're all sitting, Hamp, his wife, Miss Worsham, the, the uh, spinster, the, the white woman, and um, Molly. And we get this description. And remember, they're all sitting around the hearth, and the hearth has been an image. Carl, you're laughing, why? Wasn't it still burning? Yeah. Smoldering. Right. Yeah. yeah, smoldering though. But I, I was just going to go to that because you're. Remember, the hearth has been the symbol of family life, continuity, and stability. That's been the image right along. Followed the old Negro along the hall and into the clean spare bedroom with its unmistakable faint odor of old maidens. They were all there at Worsham, it said. His wife, a tremendous light colored woman in a bright turban leaning in the door, Miss Worsham erect again on a hard straight chair, the old negress, it's not Molly. Remember, he's not known her. I mean, this is, she lives out in the, he knows of her. So, he, I mean, th I, I want to re re reinforce this for a second. Remember I said, the interesting thing about his stories is that he keeps telling them from different points of view. So this Yaknapatafa Jefferson community gets filled out, but always from a different center. To Gavin, it's, it's not Molly. To us it is, I mean, we know her from, from a Fire in the Heart, intimately. To Gavin, it's this Negress. So we're getting, he does this in amazing ways. He, he is so faithful to the way people live in their little bailiwicks, you know, their little areas um, in this larger community, and even though it gets richer and richer and fuller and fuller. A tremendous light-colored woman in a bright turban leaning in the door. <clears throat> Miss Worsham erect again on a hard straight chair, the old negress sitting in the only rocking chair beside the hearth 
on which even tonight a few ashes smoldered faintly. I don't think that's an accident. Life is going out. Remember from the third section of the bear when old Ben was killed in salmon, it's just gotten and through Delta Honor, we've been seeing a darker and darker modern world. Chair beneath a hearth in which even tonight a few ashes smoldered faintly. She held a reed stem clay pipe, but she was not smoking it. The ash dead and white in a strained bowl. And actually looking at her for the first time, Stevens thought, good Lord, she's not as big as a 10-year-old child. This isn't long after the episode in which she took um, Lucas's machine, remember, and almost died trying to hide it, take it away from him, that curse. Um, Good Lord, she's not as big as a 10-year-old child. Then he sat too, so that the four of them, himself, Miss Worsham, the old negress, and her brother made a circle about the brick hearth on which the ancient symbol of human coherence and solidarity smoldered. He'd be at home the day after tomorrow, Aunt Molly, he said. The old negress didn't even, the old negress, God, this is, didn't even look at him. She never had looked at him. He dead, she said. Pharaoh got him. Oh, yes, Lord, Worsham said. Pharaoh got him. Then sold my Benjamin, the old negress said, sold him in Egypt. She began to sway faintly back and forth in the chair. Oh, yes, Lord, Worsham said. Hush, Miss Worsham said. Hush, Aunt. A telephone, Mr. Edmund, Stephen said. He will have everything ready when you get there. Rod Edmund sold him, the old negress said. She swayed back and forth in the chair, sold my Benjamin. Hush, Miss Worsham said. Hush, Molly. Hush now. No, Stephen said. No, he didn't, Aunt Molly. It wasn't Mr. Edmonds. Mr. Edmonds didn't. But she can't hear me, he thought. She was not even looking at him. She never had looked at him. The white, black wall. Um, she sees something about what happened that is a man of law he doesn't quite see. Um, sold my Benjamin, she said. Sold him in Egypt. Sold him in Egypt, Worsham said. Edmund sold my Benjamin, sold him to Pharaoh, sold him to Pharaoh, and now he's dead. I'd better go, Stephen said. He rose quickly. Miss Worsham rose too, <coughs> but he did not wait for her to precede him. He went down the hall fast, almost running. He can't get out of there fast enough. <laughs> God. He did not even know whether she was following him or not. Soon I will be outside, he thought. Then there will be air, space, breath. This reminds me of Ryder in so many ways. I mean, he, he can't deal with the moment. He has to get out. Um, then there will be air, space, health. Then he could hear her behind him, the crisp, light, brisk, yet unhurried feet, as he'd heard them descending the chairs from his office and beyond them the voice. Sold my Benjamin, sold him in Egypt, sold him in Egypt. Oh, yes, Lord. He descended the store, the stairs almost running. Go down or over the next page. Now I could hear the third voice, which would be that of Hemp's wife, a true constant soprano, which ran without words beneath the strophe and antistrophe of the brother and sister. That, you know, it's a counterpoint with one taking one voice and then another. Sold him in Egypt, and now he's dead. Oh, yes, Lord, sold him in Egypt, sold him in Egypt, and now he dead. Sold him to Pharaoh, and now he dead. I'm sorry, Stephen said. I ask you to forgive me. I should have known. I shouldn't have come. It's all right, Miss Worsham said. 
It's our grief. Now, the next day, it describes him going to the train station to pick up um, the casket and then loading it in the um, middle of 364. <clears throat> they take the, the, the casket through town. Um, Stevens let a driver drive Molly and worship, and he is in the editor's car. Um, and and it's, it's described this way. Already picking up speed again and followed still by the two cars containing the four people, the high-headed, erect white woman, the old negress, the designated paladin of justice and truth and right. <laughs> Can you hear the irony in that tone? I mean, the, he's the champion. I, mean, it, it, it's, I don't think this is a black-white irony, by the way. I don't think this is just a parody of it. it. It's subtler than that because there's some sense in which it's true, but there's also some sense in which Gavin's is missing something here. The high-headed, erect white woman, the old negress, the designated paladin of justice and truth and right, the Heidelberg PhD, informal component complement to the Negro murderer's catafalque, the slain wolf, the slain wolf. When they reached the edge of town, the, um, the hearse was going quite fast. You know what happens at this point. Stephen reached over, cut the switch so that the editor's car coasted, slowing as it began to break it, the hearse and the other car drawing rapidly away, now as though in flight, the light and unrained summer dust spurting from beneath the fleeing wheels. Soon they were gone. Remember, that happens just as they reach the corporate limits, the city, appropriately, the city limits. They're sitting there in the car, and then this exchange takes place. Do you know what she asked me this morning back there at the station, he said? Probably not, Stephen said. She said, is you going to put it into paper? What? That's what I said, the editor said, and she said it again. Is you going to put it into paper? I want it all into paper, all of it. And I wanted to say, if I should happen to know how he really died, do you, want, do you want that in there too, and by Jupiter? If I had, and she had known what we know even, I believe she would have said yes, but I didn't say it. I just said, why you couldn't read it, auntie? She said, Miss Bell will show me where to look, and I can look at it. You put it into paper, all of it. Oh, Stephen said, yes, he thought. It doesn't matter to her now, since it had to be, and she couldn't stop it. And now that it's all over and done and finished, she doesn't care how he died. She just wanted him home. But she wanted him to come home right. She wanted that casket and those flowers and the hearse, and she wanted to ride through town behind it in a car. Come on, he said, let's go back to town. I haven't seen my desk in two days. Okay. What are we to make of Molly's request? I want it all in the paper, all of it. The editor is shocked. I mean, he, or, yeah, um, he doesn't believe her because he, he, like Gavin, wanted to cover it up to, to, to protect her against shame or social embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And um, so he tries to avoid being blunt about it, even in his last response to her. And he says, and I wanted to say, if I should happen to know I really died, do you want me in, 
do you want that? But he won't say that. And by Jupiter, if I had, and she had known what we know even, I believe she would have said. But I didn't say it. I just said, because he's trying to get around it. Well, you couldn't read it, Auntie. And she said, Miss Bell will show me where to look, and I can look at it. You put it in the paper, all of it. What? Molly's got the last word in one sense here. Um, how are we to understand? Um, this seems so, I don't know. It seems so insignificant, you know, it's just, I want it in a paper. It's, it's a woman whose grandmother saying, I just want it in the paper. But is there more to what she's saying than on the, than, you know, what meets us on the eyes? What, how are we to take this last request on Molly's part? I think she means the whole story of everything in that book. Why? Because it happened. Because it was life. Yeah, I, nobody's going to have any trouble she with that. Loved, she loved her, her friend. Well, she her, loved him. Yeah. So no matter what he that, did, she wanted him home and family. wanted him to have everything that everyone else got. Yeah, yeah. She wanted I mean, everything that had happened to that family out there. Well, the and other, the other, the other reason is, is that you know most people have a eulogy and the like. I mean, there is no eulogy here. I mean, this the, whatever is here is. What appears in the paper. That's the eulogy. Yeah, they're yeah. going to be in a church and have a regular ceremony where they. He's not been a part of the community, right. so, yeah. so right. people wouldn't have much to say about him anyway, except. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Roth didn't want him on his property. I mean, yeah. he kicked right. him off, so. Candy, you had, sorry, you had something. Anybody else? I'm, I think she means the whole book, mm -hmm. yeah. all, everything that yeah. happened to the family. Why is that important? Well, Truly, why is that important? I mean, I, I, I believe the same thing, that when Molly's, even if she doesn't mean it, because does she know the story? In some way, indirectly, I mean, she hasn't gotten Faulkner's story, but what Faulkner is giving it is what somebody like Molly would have known because they grew up with it. Yes, she lived. Lucas, writer. You know, that was their life. So even if she doesn't know it in the form that Faulkner gives it, that's what. Why is it important that all of that be told for her? That's what, you, that's what you know, a eulogy is about. I mean, it's, it's about the aspect that you had a life. You had left something that was important. You made a contribution. You, uh, you, had, you had good times and, and bad times, basically. With, with regard to, to joys and sorrows and, and uh, usually eulogies well focus on good things there's somebody in the community would you see this as I've heard the other family you know, I've, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of funerals in my time so I've kind of have you know seen a, a broad spectrum I mean they, they really cover a, a whole range of, of uh, I, I've been to a lot of funerals too, but I can't ever remember a funeral that would have gone into Lucas's, the awful things that he did, or or the or what Ike uncovers in the in the ledgers. Those are right. She knew it all. Maybe that was her way of leveling up the field, so to speak, the humiliation issue, because he. We were talking about the North and the South and how the black people have always lived under. 
a roof of humiliation, mm -hmm. and the white people haven't. And because her son was a bad guy, ran away, and it was not necessarily her son's fault, so to speak, maybe because he was a product of the humiliation of the white people. In the we don't know. I mean, this, there's this. There's this Calvinistic, well, I don't want to, I want to be careful, but there's that um, line from Gavin um, when he's recalling the circumstances of Samuel's life, you know, that he got into trouble, broke into the commissary, Edmonds chases him off, and then he ends up getting in trouble in town. And his description is, a youth not yet 21 with something in him from the father who, who begot and deserted him who is now in the state penitentiary for manslaughter, so his dad's in jail serving a manslaughter sentence. Some seed not only violent, but dangerous and bad. You know, it, I mean, there's this, it, it's a, it's, I'm, I'm a little bit troubled with that line, but it comes from Gavin, and there are these things about Gavin that clearly stand off from Molly, as a man and woman, that um, that, that remark suggests that this is so Calvinistic that some people begin bad and it's just, you know, they will grow up that way. It's a hard question to, to if, if Roth had not chased him off, would he have had a chance to live a decent life? I don't, I don't know and I don't think so and I don't even, I don't think it even matters. Because I think one of the points of the novel is, the, the reason Molly says all of it is, um, this goes so far beyond a eulogy in my mind that we get into the private lives that nobody sees in a public occasion. That if Christ is present, wait, let me go back. We've got a social world, very much like the northern respectable world that, that Ishmael flees from. Everybody in this moral code, they're hiding behind their social respectability. Everybody's nice and respectable. And we see it failing. We see a social respectable world here. It's failing. Rod Edmonds has got this thing. He, in, in, the world, in the eyes of the world, to Spain, Compson, he, I should have taken it. He's a, he's a social embarrassment because he didn't take it. If, if we measure the world against Christ, when Christ says, give it all up, then you have to say, can you ever, can you ever be, can, is there any way to fully become who you are if you don't bear everything? the sins that are humiliating and socially unacceptable, because that's what Christ did. He went to a cross and was humiliated as God. Um, I mean, we're asked over and over again not to let that get in the way of whatever we do. So one of the things I think Molly brings into focus is this extraordinary human dignity that goes far, far deeper than social respectability and to bear it. And in, in that sense, I don't know where you guys are in this, but I'd say she is probably the closest to Christ. I agree with that. I, I see it as a freedom, freeing of herself. Her, yeah. Because let the truth be told. Yes, yes. And the truth will set you free. Yes, yes. Nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Carrying all your yeah, life. Yeah. Because your love is great enough that those, those things that fright, you're not arrested by your fear because your love is greater. You've let all that go. Your love is greater than those things. She wants him home. So... And it's interesting, it, it's, it's Molly, it's the woman who does this. And I'm going to say, I mean, I don't know where you guys are, but I want, I'm, you, know, you know me by now, but I'm gonna, it seems to be one of the things that's brought into focus at the end here is this difference between what I'm going to call the creative imagination, i.e. Poet, poetry, 
and the world of law and social order, the Gavin, that, the, that, that in some ways they're incongruous, that the, that the poetic imagination, Molly is an image of the poetic imagination bringing everything to us. Because we've been seeing it, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy, go down Moses. It's the poets who, and it seems to me if we read this, you have to say, no poet could have done this if he hadn't had something feminine deeply a part of his characters because these things are so repeatedly feminine. So it's the poet, who, when Molly says, I mean, I couldn't agree more, when Molly says, I want it all in the paper, she means, it all. because there's no way we, there's no way we can love. And that isn't to take away hard choices. Ike made a hard choice when he gave up the land. You know, it's not like he's going to be, it's not like he's going to be relieved or he's going to be free from suffering or failures or what's going to seem like an indictment of what he did because the curse is going to come back on him. You, there's no way to do justice to this. Implicitly, Christ is behind it everywhere. Um, all of it. All of it. Keeping the sense of community, whether it was good or bad. Yeah. Bringing him home. Yeah. It's I an extraordinary to, in also bringing him home, uh, black people were very much realizing that there was life after death, that they would go and be with Christ. If she saw his death as an opening up that he could that he could now cross over to the world. Even though he had done bad things, she didn't see yeah. that. He was just relieved now, take him home, he will be with the Lord forever. She doesn't say that, but... No, she doesn't but, say yeah, that, but, but I, mean, that's, I, I get that feel. Yeah, that's why yeah. she wanted him home. That yeah, we don't get him. any of that, but but clearly, and remember what she said in the Fire in the Heart story when she was talking with Edmonds and she said, he's cursed and she's frightened that the, the, the earth belongs to God and yeah. And she thought what Lucas was doing was um, cursing him, and she was terrified of what it would do. So we know that she's a deeply religious woman. Um, I think it's probably where she gets the strength to do this at the end, where she says, I want all of it. But there's something in her, there's a love in her greater than her concern for social appearances. Um, what an extraordinary line. I hope you all remember that forever. I want it all in the paper, all of it. I tell you what I think about Ike since I wasn't here last time. I think he wimped out on the land and he wimped out and when he treated the woman with a little baby at the end of autumn there, he was a wimp all over. You weren't here, so I mean I I I look at it differently, but Yes, I know you do. <laughs> I don't and just to remember that, um, remember the cost to him. Whenever you think about him, the, 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 because the cost was not small, he was, and all of the teaching that went behind him from Sam, the things that he'd learned to do differently from other men, that was not a small decision for him. It cost him everything. So that in some sense, however you think about it, I think we're, we're meant to have Christ in mind because nobody makes a decision like that to give up everything when you're trying to do it to stop a sin out of wimpy motives, he's not a, but he, I mean, he really showed himself to be a hunter, you know, but, and the, and, wait, wait, and the, the things that come at the end, you know, the, when they all, when he has to 
face his disillusionment at seeing that it seems like it was all worth nothing. As you don't give everything up and hope something will change. If he had taken the responsibility, but he didn't. I know. Yeah. And he didn't when the woman with the baby came in. You know, I, he just I, wanted yeah, rid of it. So yeah. in both cases, yeah. to me, he he shirked his responsibility. Yeah. Doug, I'm glad you said that. I, you, I don't, I don't quite look at it that way, um, as you know. But, and and I and at the end, by the way, I really do agree with you. At the end, when he says "go north," to me that was yeah. a cowardly thing to say. Yes. But, but wait, I just want to because you've said it, and we didn't say it tonight. That's the great debate on this story. I mean, when you listen to people argument, the the great concern. Finally, the when you look at all of them together, the two things that you have to the two sides that you come down on, and people come down on it strongly on both sides. They take the two positions that we're taking that were either, he was really um, too cavalier and not responsible in, in refusing it, or there was something. That's the great question here. And it's interesting that, that Faulkner, wait, and by the way, Faulkner doesn't come down on it. Stop and think about this. The woman accuses Ike at the end. She said, you failed him. Yes. You spoiled. I would have made a man. Right. Roth is accused at the end. You know, and we've seen. I mean, one of the one of the things on the other side of the argument is that we know we've seen over and over again that when people take possession of something, it has an effect on them. And we see it in Roth. You know that that um, he's arguing in a very idealistic, dignified way all the way through the bear. You know giving reasons I should have kept it because he's taking responsibility and he takes responsibility. Remember when he tells Lucas, get off my land, he's so furious at him. He want, when, when Molly comes and says, I want a divorce, he's yeah. furious at him. He takes responsibility. But at the end, he's blamed. Mo Molly, mm -hmm. Roth Edmonds sold my, you know, that. so both of them are, come under serious attack at the end. Um, so Faulkner doesn't judge. He, he gives us this story, and one of the results of it is in the critical discussion is that, that people end up you know, taking both of those two sides. It, for, for me, it's part of the greatness of this story that he, he leaves us in a situation where we have to look at that question and wrestle with it and doesn't make a judgment. He just presents these humans in this particular, and then we have to struggle with it. <coughs> Okay, but um, before we leave, I, I hope you guys will um, get the Faulkner books. And if this stuff has touched you at all, I, I hope you'll read them, and I, I just hope you enjoy them, um, if this has touched you in any way. You guys all have a good summer. Be safe. Stay safe. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I meant to say a prayer for you guys in your travels, but just know that we will anyway, okay? So do we have both the Snopes trilogy and the... The Snopes trilogy isn't, it's ordered and it's coming. It'll be in in the next week. Okay. So if you can check in the office. Okay. And that... Do you know how much that will be? I think